Hi, this is Bob Rosakis. You're listening to the Batman Family Reunion on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 15 of the Batman Family Reunion, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am Sean M. Myers, the M standing for Man Bat, one of your hosts. And with me, as always, is my co-host and Bat cousin, Paul Keene. What's new, Paul? Oh, I'm doing great, Sean. I just got back, though, from making sure that great Aunt Kim does not find the Batcave again. Her memory's a little iffy, so she doesn't quite remember, but she found it in 1989. How about you? I'm well. I was hanging out with great Uncle Mike. The nice thing is he hasn't been to a reunion since 1992, but decided to come to the reunion this year. <laughs> we are also super excited this month because we have another double set of special guests this episode. Back cousins Jim Beard and Craig Boldman. Welcome, Jim and Craig. How are you guys? But more importantly, what food did you bring to the reunion? Let's start with you, Jim. Okay. Hey, first of all, I have to say, man, this is about as much homework as I've had since I was 12 years old. In <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever had so much prep being a, being a guest on something. But I, I got to tell you guys, I brought my special ambrosia salad. Extra points if you know what movie that's from. Sean, you're the movie guy. I, I am the movie guy. I'm not sure. No. Yeah, many things go right over my head, Jim. So, <laughs> it's, uh... it's Edward Scissorhands. Ah. And what dish did you bring, Craig? Okay, well, thanks for having me. For my contribution, I, I dusted off an old recipe. It's a chili recipe. For a brief time when I was, uh, we, I shared an apartment with Tom Mandrake, who was yep. has done his share of Batman uh, comics. He penciled Batman for a while. Yep. And so this is, uh, we called Tiller Chili. We, I was no kind of uh, chef at the time. And I didn't know the difference between a clove of garlic and a bulb of garlic. <laughs> Ouch! I think I've I think I've got it figured out this time. So I think, we're I think Oliver Queen though is is yeah. taking that as a challenge, right? Definitely. <laughs> well, why don't you remind our listeners what our show is all about? So Batman Family, as hopefully all our listeners know by now, was a DC comic that ran for twenty issues from nineteen seventy five to seventy eight. And then it rescued Detective Comics from the DC implosion by continuing on as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin, along with reprints, before morphing into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as the Huntress, Commissioner Gordon, Man Bat, and even Ragman and the Demon. Both of your hosts collected and read these comics as they came out and are excited to share their love of this era at the Batman Family Reunion. Greg and Jim, how about you telling us your secret origin with the Batman Family book, who your favorite member is, etc. Let's start with Craig this time. Yeah, sure. So I also followed the uh, the comic as it came out. About that time, I was pretty much following all of DC's output. The attraction of this particular comic to me was actually the reprints. I regarded the, the new material as added bonus material. But I, I really uh, love the uh, the chance to see some some of the old stuff by Bill Finger and Jerry Robbins and, and all that. That was it. I jumped on with the first issue, and uh, I, I think I stayed till the end when it transitioned into uh, Detective Comics. I got to say that, that the cover of issue number one particularly caught my attention for the, the figure of Batman on the front that was 
actually a piece of repurposed Superman art from the, the cover of Shazam number one. That hooked me. <laughs> Do you have a favorite member of the Batman family? I'm very fond of Man Bat, but it has to be the the Neil Adams and Frank Robbins Man Bat. I can't warm up too much to the the other versions. Okay, Jim, how about you? Number one, I wholeheartedly support Craig's love of reprints because you couldn't be a kid back then and not just be buried under reprints. And you know what? Everything that I know about the history of comics came from dropping right down into the middle of Reprint City, which I love. And I know a lot of people back then didn't. I owe my love for everything Batman to my dad. I was born into a Batman household. I was only uh, nine months old when the 66 series debuted. And by 14 months, my, my mother wrote in my baby book. Nobody out there knows what that is. Just Google baby book. <laughs> she made a note that said 14 months dances to record Batman. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my most favorite thing ever from my childhood. My dad was buying me comics. Still at this point, he bought me my first comics that were specifically for me in about 71 and then my first superhero comic in 72 which was a batman comic of course and by this point if there was anything that was batman he was buying it for me i was already in love with these family titles i was already getting superman family and then batman family came along and you know i mean i had to have it because if one superhero is good then nine are even better <laughs> yep. right? yeah and then that that love extended then to even super team family which has got to be one of the weirdest sounding titles <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a weird, and know, a weird ever. comic to go along with it yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah that first issue of batman family of Robin and Batgirl fighting the devil. That was a mind blower. And if I'm not mistaken, that was Mike Grell. Mike Grell, mm -hmm. written by Elliot yeah. Magan, yeah. Do you have a favorite member of the Batman family? I mean, obviously it's still the man himself, but if you're going to go to the extended family, it's got to be Robin. I've always been drawn to Robin, and, and a lot of that is the costume. You know, the original costume, I love the colors. Burt Ward was literally Robin stepped right off the page of the comics. I mean, to this day, to me, there has never been a more perfect Robin than Burt Ward. And to, and to see him come to life and so accurately, visually, it was just an incredible thing. And it, and it still is. All right. Well, thanks, guys. You want to get rolling, Sean? We are. We're going to start talking about Batman Family number 15. And the cover date is December 1977, January 1978, and is back to being bi-monthly. The actual release date was September 29th, 1977, a 48-page count with a 60-cent cover price. And there are two new stories, and the cover artist is Jim Aparo. And the cover is great. It has like a very jet black background with Killer Moth right in the middle, shooting his cocoon guns, and out of the two cocoons are Batgirl swinging towards the camera, Robin swinging away. And the cover copy down the center has how can the two-gun killer mall fight Batgirl in Gotham City and Robin at Hudson University at the same time. What do you guys think of the cover? How about we start with Jim? Wow. You know what, guys? Normally, Jim Apero can do no wrong. He is he after Irv Novick, he is, quote unquote, my Batman artist. That's where I came in, but but I got to say, I don't like this cover. There, he, he's done much better covers, and I think it's that whole division thing and the, and the big black space in the middle. 
you know, I like a cover that that it's it's one single illustration for the most part. And honestly, the figures are not his best. And then, of course, he loses points for having Robin facing away from. I, I don't know. Sean I likes would, the I like the butt say shot. He right? loses <laughs> points for that. <laughs> <laughs> and as much as I love Batgirl, you know, but but yeah, you know, to me, it, it looks rushed. To me, a lot of the apparelness of his art, it just isn't there. I'm just not feeling it. I could almost swear that the the figure of Killer Moth is not him at all. And you know, part of that is because I don't see Robin's face. And that's one of the things I love about Apero so much is his faces. Face expression. And and the way he drew masks. I always appreciate it too. So so not horrible, but definitely not my most favorite Apero ever. How about you, Craig? What's your thought? Well, I would also have to say that uh, I've never seen a bad Jim Apero cover. This is probably, uh, if, if you're going to uh, rate them all, this wouldn't be at the very top. But I, I actually think it's an interesting cover layout it's different than the usual thing so uh, i give it some points for that it's an odd choice having uh, robin uh, facing away from us but more than that i would criticize it for uh, the choice of it's just not that compelling a story point to illustrate how can killer moth be in this city and that city at the same time it's just not it's not worth worrying that much about you know there's probably <laughs> Even non-writers can come up with dozens of ways that could happen, <laughs> especially when you're talking about a villain who has a full face mask. So, yeah, <laughs> could it be someone else impersonating him. <laughs> spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Geez. You can also find. I mean, there's some improbable plot twists in the story, but uh, <laughs> you could probably make a better cover out of some of those improbable moments. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of feel points. the same. Yeah. Good points, Craig. I love Jim Aparo. He's my favorite. But to be honest, this is, I thought, the weakest of the Batman family Aparo covers, in my opinion. I've liked all the rest of them more. The figures are a little lankier than usual. I don't know if that's because they're stretching, hanging on their bat ropes or what. They seem a little lankier. And I also did not like the lot of cover copy in the middle. It takes up a lot of prime real estate on the cover, in my opinion. Not much else to say. Sean, you got anything else to add? Yeah, I guess kind of the exact opposite of what you guys were saying. I love it. Now, I, I am not... I disown you, cousin. <laughs> I am not saying this is the best Batman family cover. I absolutely am not saying that. But I do love it. I like that black background. I think it adds some kind of like mystery or danger or whatever. I absolutely think this is the best that Killer Moth has ever looked. Like, I think he looks formidable here. And I mean... Killer Moth does not look great like, as a <laughs> villain, but I think he looks great here. See, I like that Batgirl and Robin are facing different directions because it, it kind of gets you that they're different cities. If I have one complaint, maybe, I think I don't like that both of the cities are kind of like orange in the background. Like it's probably supposed to be taking place at the same time. So it's both sunset. I think if they had gone with different colors in the background, it maybe would reinforce that it's a different city. But yeah, like I, I actually think this is a great cover. I love it. Like it's not my favorite. I don't think it's the best cover ever, but I, I do really like it. I like the composition. I like the colors. I like him in the middle. I, I like the cover copy. I like it a lot. It's too funny. <laughs> well, we'll let we'll have to let our listeners decide. We'll post the image of the cover, of course, as well as plenty of additional pages from each of the stories in our family portrait gallery on the network's website. Sean, please remind our listeners where we can find that. That is the fire and water podcast.com. All right, so we're going to jump into the first story. 
It is called Find the Batcave and Rule the Underworld, starring Batgirl and Robin, of course. A 24-page gem written by Bob Rosakis with pencils by Lee Elias and inks by Joe Giella. And reprinted in our favorite two omnibus, the uh, Batgirl Bronze Age omnibus number two and Robin the Bronze Age omnibus. Now, we'll just say that this has two parts, a Robin part and a Batgirl part. So we're going to talk about, we're going we're to split up our discussion to the first part first and do a, our regular segments that way. So we start out our story in the basement lair of the ever-imposing supervillain pair of Killer Moth and the Cavalier. For some reason, they think that they can figure out where the Batcave is in order to steal all the tech there. Killer Moth tried way back in Batman number 63 from 1951, apparently, as a footnote later in the story reminds us. Anyway, they want to use that tech in their criminal endeavors. I am sure it will be just as successful as them when they use the tech from the Island of a Thousand Thrills. <laughs> they disagree on which of the Dynamite duo could lead them to their destination. So Killer Moth bets his buddy that he can get the info from Batgirl before the Cavalier can get it from Robin. Off we go. So this leads to part one, Batgirl, starring in Moth-ridden murder. We cut to our nation's capital as Killer Moth is robbing his third bank of the week, hoping to encounter the Domino Daredevil. She finally shows up and chases him around the corner. But Killer Moth circles back and does something to Babs' brand new cycle. Remember the one that was trashed two issues ago. The cops, he glue gun to the wall, and later they tell Babs that he did something to her bike, so she's really careful with it. After lassoing the bike with her bat rope, unsurprisingly, the cycle blows up. But the smoke leaves an audio message that Batman is next on Killer Moth's hit list. I am sure the Dark Knight detective is shaking in his boots. The brilliant arch criminal figures Batgirl will lead him straight to the Batcave, but instead she calls her dad. She figures Killer Moth is listening in, so in her official Batgirl voice, she warns Commissioner Gordon about Killer Moth's threat to Batman. The commissioner reminds Batgirl that she is due back in Gotham tomorrow night for a rubbish chicken dinner. Mm, and Batgirl knows Killer Moth won't resist trying again then. He does, of course, and he also glue guns her again and again warms her about Batman being next. Babs gets out of the trap and also gets the hint and finally says that she will go see Batman in person loud enough for Killer Moth to hear. And he hee-hee-hees and follows her. But Babs is on to him, realizing he has wanted her escape both times. I think in the brain department, Babs has a little bit on Killer Moth. Anyway, the Batman she takes him to see is actually her ex-boyfriend, Jason Bard. Of course, Jason lives near the beach and has caves near his house, but without the cool stuff inside. Killer Moth explores the cave, but can't find any of the bat stuff. So Babs surprises him, tells him she's been on to him the whole time, and of course she clobbers him with some gymnastics and splashes him into the water. Jason can't have coffee with the Gordons since he has to rush to New York City for the Man Bat story, but Babs does get a good breakfast with her dad and an all-night diner. End of part one. So Jim, Craig, Sean, what'd you guys think of part one, moth-ridden murder? Let's start with you, Jim. Okay. <laughs> wow where, where to begin where to begin first, first things first when she's doing her official batgirl voice to her dad um, it, it adds a new wrinkle to it if you imagine her sounding like christian bale doing his batman voice hi dad <laughs> i was really struck 
And don't don't get me wrong, I was really struck about how simplistic the story and and the writing here is. Now, it's been a while since I read this, but it's funny because it all came back to me the moment I, you know, I cracked into it, especially the Robin part. Very, very much so. But at this point, this is funny. This is 77 and the Batman TV show went off the air in, in 68. And so much of this could have come, you know, right out of the TV show. It would have been at home in the TV show. And I think it's an interesting point to make here is that, you know, everybody points to Danny O'Neill and Neil Adams to, you know, renovating the character in 1970 and getting him back to his dark roots and all that stuff or whatever. And I don't think a lot of people realize or care to realize is that that was more or less an isolated event. The Batman that everybody knew which is basically out out of the TV show era, was still going on. Bob Haney was writing some of the goofiest stuff in in Brave and Bold, Batman walking down the street and greeting people (laughs) in broad daylight. With a godson. He was was the bat buddy to to everybody. He had a weird bat sense every once in a while that that Haney... (laughs) put in there again it's so funny this is 77 this is roughly 10 years later and and the the threads of the or the tendrils of the tv show are still in the comics and still in the character and that's what my takeaway from this is i do like that batgirl leads killer moth on a little wild chase there and he's he starts spelunking that's my favorite part there when he's going through those caves and you know you can see him going i'm I'm so close to the Uh, it's so there's an episode there's a joker episode of the 60s show where he's got a tracker on the batmobile and he's in his joke mobile and because they're hoping to find the bat cave and that's honestly that's the whole thing about this issue with me is that it's all about finding the bat cave and because i'm all about the bat cave <laughs> it's one of my most favorite parts of the batman mythos so so that that's my takeaway is is how interesting it was of the tone and and feeling of this as late as 1977. How about you, Craig? I think that uh, for me, Batman was in a pretty good place at this time. He was about where I wanted him to be. He was tough enough, but he wasn't nuts. He was professional. You didn't have to worry about him so much. He knew what he was doing. The Batman family sort of indulged itself by having a little more fun with it, I think. The, The stories in this book were entertaining, but they were not essential. You didn't have to include them in any timeline of important events in the Batman history. So I liked it in that regard. I sort of like having stories that you don't have to invest yourself in that deeply, that you can just sort of read for the enjoyment. The thing that I like, I guess, most about this is the fact that Lee Elias was the pencil artist on this, and I love Lee Elias. And Joe Giella did the inks. Joe Giella tends to flatten, I think, artists that he inks. When he's teamed with, say, Carmine Infantino, I think it's a that's a great match because uh, the instances I've seen of Infantino's penciling, they're very loose and they, they call for somebody to, to rein that in a little bit. I don't think it plays to Lee Elias's uh, advantage so much. But I loved his Green Arrow work so much, and it's great to see him uh, working on the page here. Yeah, we'll talk some more about Lee Elias later. Can I add a quick something to that? I love what Craig is saying about Lee Elias. You know what it, it, the art here kind of reminded me of, and maybe tone more than anything, is Bob Oskner. Mm. 
in terms of it's cartoony, but yet it's not. And I think Oscar really was doing that same sort of thing. Yeah, I can totally get on board with what you're saying about Lee, Craig. I, I don't necessarily have a lot of stuff to add. I echo a lot of what you said. Like, I think it's fun. It's neat. I do absolutely love that you kind of can see what's happening. He keeps saying, I'm going to murder Batman. I'm going to murder Batman. I'm gonna, You know, why would you tell me? <laughs> why wouldn't you just go do it? I love the fact that Batgirl checks her cycle before she gets yeah. on that. Absolutely I love, love that, that part. I love that And part. the reason, because of like the outsider last time, I love that. Wait, where does she get the money for these Batgirl cycles though, right? <laughs> Come on. The Wayne Foundation. She went you. to the plane last issue. Yeah. <laughs> I do think the most incredible thing about this issue, because remember, this was in the 70s, but at the bottom of page seven, Killer Moth is clearly played by William H. Macy in his first starring role. <laughs> I just think that's I think that's phenomenal. I, I love that for him. Oh my goodness. I have two favorite parts. One is the fact that in their hideout they have posters of Batgirl and Robin that they stick with the swords and stuff. I love that. That's a mark of a great supervillain. And then part one is titled Moth Ridden Murder. Yet no one is murdered. <laughs> you know, I was like, Bob. They should have called it mothballed murder. Because <laughs> the murder got mothballed, right? Moth-ridden robberies or something. And there's a little padding. I don't know why he had to take her to the stadium and glue her up again. You know, so there's a little padding in it. Fill out the page count. Oh, showmanship. Have, showmanship, I guess. <laughs> But I love the scene in the cave where she just schools him because this guy's no match for back row. I can't figure out why she decided to to lure him to Jason Bard's place. Because <laughs> he had a cave, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. He was close okay. to the caves. Yeah. Okay. My guess is that was never mentioned before now or after now that he had caves at his house. Being Bob Rosakis, I bet it definitely was so that he could work him in and say, oh, I'm going to go to New York for the next story. I really think that's, yeah. I think that yeah. is the reason why Jason yeah. Bard lives close to caves. Yeah. He was trying to connect all these stories together. We saw it obviously last issue or two issues ago, whenever it was with the big crossover. Hey, he was the answer man. So he don't was. question him. <laughs> Okay, now we are going to move on to the Bat Timeline. In this segment, we're going to take a look at the other comic titles that were published this month and what the rest of the Batman family was doing at that time. And this is all thanks to Mike's amazing world of DC Comics. Believe you me, you can spend three or four hours going through there. We highly recommend it. It's so much fun. So the Bat Books this month, we're going to go in alphabetical order. First is Action Comics number 478. And it's a story called Earth's Last Day. And there's a guest appearance by Batman and Alfred Pennyworth. Mm. And it's a cool cover, kind of like a purplish background. Earth is sending out an SOS. Superman, help us or Earth will die. And there's a whole bunch of people attacking Superman. The next issue is Batman number 294. And this is the testimony of the Joker. And that's the fantastic storyline, uh, Where Were You on the Night Batman Was Murdered. And this cover is fantastic. Batman yeah, is lying down. that's an apparel cover right yeah. there, folks. <laughs> Batman's lying down. His face is very, very close to the quote-unquote camera, except his face is rubbed out, kind of like the question. And Joker's pulling back his mask. It's, re it's really, really great cover, really great uh, storyline. It's so much fun. And there is no Brave and the Bold this month. 
We do have a Detective Comics, though, number 474, another Engelhart and Rogers gem. In fact, this is the reboot of Deadshot, and Rogers redesigned him. And this is a classic. It's been reprinted many times. Mike says it's been reprinted eight times, so I thought that was interesting. Uh, obviously, great, great storyline there. Yeah, that's fantastic. The next one is Justice League of America, number 149, and it's called The Face of the Star Czar, T-S-A-R. It's a great cover. There's a floating head of Dr. Light, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, Superman and Batman are all like literally going to pieces because Dr. Light is splitting them up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid, I loved that Manhunter privateer storyline that Steve Englehart was yeah. writing in Justice League. Yeah. That was really cool. Mark Shaw, uh, Mark Jack Shaw. Kirby character. Yeah, yeah. Big character. Yeah, very cool. The next issue is a personal super favorite of mine, Super Friends number nine, and it's called Three Ways to Kill a World. And if you're familiar with it, it's the third part of the Justice League and the World Heroes, the story arc where Zan and Jaina are first introduced. And it is fantastic. If you're a fan of the mm -hmm. Justice League, Justice Society, and the other group that they would team up with each, each year, definitely re read this because it's very, very reminiscent of that. It's fantastic. The Super Friends, the Justice League, the heroes that would go on to be the Global Guardians. I love it. We also got Teen Titans number 52, uh, unfortunately nearing the end of the run, but it does have Robin in it, as well as Duella Dent and Bat Dash Girl, also written by Bob Rosakis. And then finally, World's Finest Comics, number 248, a beloved dollar comic. Woohoo! Yeah. Superman, Batman in The Lurkers. But you also get Green Arrow and Black Canary, Vigilante, Wonder Woman. This is not a great month for Batman's face on covers because <laughs> on, on World's Finest, his face is melting. So, you know, Bruce Bane is not making out very well this month. <laughs> Jim and Craig, what are you going to get off of the newsstand shelf this month? Let's start with Jim. You know what? I counted. Number one, this was really fun. I printed these out just to stare at them. I counted. I got 29 of them. All right. Whoa, Richie yeah. Rich himself. And, and it's, I got to tell you, because it's hard to like, I don't know what else I would want because I pretty much got everything that I, that I wanted. And you know what? I was amazed. There was some important stuff this month and a lot of it was marvel marvel two and one annual number two yep huge book the big thanos storyline there i think that's the one where he where he gets killed at the end of it or turned to stone or whatever and i gotta love it marvel premiere number 39 with the torpedo <laughs> a marvel character nobody remembers at all so even though I got a lot of stuff, here's the two things that I would have liked to have got. I did not get Defenders number 54, and I would like to have gotten that. And while it's not a comic book per se, I have it now, but boy, would I have loved to have had Amazing World of DC Comics number 16. It was like a look back at Golden Age stuff, and that's where I live. I live in the Silver Age. But I also live in the Golden Age, too. I'm the biggest Justice Society of America fan that there is. So that's what I would have picked is those two things. And that would have brought me up to 31. <laughs> <laughs> Craig, what's on your pull list this month? So I singled out two, and, and one of them has already been mentioned. It was uh, Marvel 2-in-1 Annual. My recollection is that came about because the Adam Warlock series got canceled prematurely and the plot was left hanging. So they saw fit to resolve it in two annuals. There was, I think in the month before this, it was an Avengers Annual. 
Yep. And then it wrapped up in this one. So it was good that they did that bit of housekeeping. It was a great story. The other one that I picked out is Quack number five. <laughs> published by Star Quack was a, it was all funny animal stories by a far flung variety of uh, creators. But this one, uh, the cover feature is The Wraith. And it was by Michael T. Gilbert, who nowadays is better known for uh, Mr. Monster is mm. his pet character. He was doing tremendous work even back then. The the Wraith was very influenced by uh, Will Eisner's spirit. It was sort of a funny animal version of the spirit. At that time, I think Michael was, I think he was probably living in uh, Portland, but nowadays he's in Ohio. So in my backyard, so I've gotten to know him a little bit. I appreciate that. And so it's great to, great to see him. And I'm, I'm happy to plug his past work. <laughs> Very cool. Paul, what are you grabbing off the shelf? So I'll, I'll rattle off a couple. This month in Amazing Spider-Man, Punisher comes back, guest starring again. The run with Len Wein and Ross Andrew. It's really my Spidey. Flash number, what is it? 256. A great Rich Buckler cover where the Flash, you see his face and he's scraping at his face was the top is spinning him around in the in the headlights. So that's pretty cool. Green Lantern. It's a um, Mike Grell. You've got Green Arrow versus Green Lantern at mm. the JLA satellite. You've got Cat Matui, Black Canary, all kinds of stuff going on, gearing up for number 100 next issues. So that one was really cool. For me, the first time I ever saw the Daughters of the Dragon was in Marvel Team-Up, number 64. I didn't get Iron Fist or the Black and White Mags at that time, but that's part of the classic great Claremont and Byrne run on Marvel Team-Up. Here, here. Good, glad you like that one. One that I would have gotten it if it was in the Scholastic catalog was Pizzazz, number two. <laughs> yes, yes. Did I steal that one from you, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> so Pizzazz, number two, it's got Spider-Man skating on a um, skateboard, and I'm like... I had that. So I'm, I, you know, I don't have it now, but I said I had that. So I must have been on, you know, one of those scholastic book fairs. And then you mentioned Super Team Family before number 14 was out this month. What's cool about that one is that's the finale of the Adam search for his fiance, Gene Loring. He finally gets a co-billing. He's been in all four of these issues. He's teaming up with Wonder Woman. It throws in the secret society of supervillains for good measure. Yep. His crazy fiance. Let's be fair. <laughs> it has been established that she was crazy long before yeah. Identity yeah. Crisis. So <laughs> it is what it is. Wow, there's a reference. Yeah. And then I'll just note, I didn't have it at the time, uh, was X-Men number 108. It's notable because it's John Burns' first issue taken over from uh, Dave Cockrum. Yep. You yeah. stole that. Yeah, yeah, I was going to bring that up if you didn't. Yeah. And I can't believe it. That was the very first X-Men I bought oh. off. Cool. And cool. I, I came in right at the right beginning. At the right time. Burn, yeah. Burns, yeah. Sean, what did what do you have that I didn't get? A lot. A lot of the ones I picked, you guys have already covered. So for the most part, I'll skip those. Although Amazing Spider-Man 175 was talked about. Big Apple Battleground with the Punisher. The reason I wanted to point this out is it's Spider-Man hanging off of the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. Two months ago, I was at the Isle of a Thousand Thrills, and there they have a Spider-Man ride where literally the villains are stealing the Statue of Liberty. So I absolutely had to bring that up. <laughs> the next one is Challengers of the Unknown, number 84, To Save oh. a Monster. Mm. And that is a fantastic issue. It has Swamp Thing holding some of the Challengers. And jumping into the body of the professor is Dead Man. And if you have not listened to Digest Cast, I absolutely recommend it. They just did a great issue 
where someone picked out their favorite dead man stories for a digest. And, oh, and were- Sean is being modest. That someone was him. I just listened to it today, Sean. It just came out the other day. Great episode. This was one of the covers you picked for your cover galley, was it not? Yes, it absolutely was. Yeah, great cover. My next pick is Foom, number 19. I was not aware of Foom at the time, and I don't know that I'll ever get Foom because, Paul, correct me, we were at the Baltimore Comic Con together, and we saw an issue of Foom. Wasn't it like $250? Yeah, one of them they had really up there. And I was like, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I will not be getting food. (laughs) I think everybody talked about Marvel 2-in-1, the thing in Spider-Man, which is the Thanos story. The reason why I want to bring it up is because it was reprinted in a digest. The most recent Marvel digests that were actually published by Archie. That story is in the Thanos issue, and that's fantastic. That's the first place I had ever read it. Good pull. I want to bring up Mr. Miracle number 21 because of the beautiful, beautiful uh, artwork in that book. That's fantastic. I've actually never read those, but I it's on my DC to read list. I did have pizzazz. I, I had that on my list. I didn't have the book. Someone mentioned Super Team Family, which guest starred the Secret Society of Supervillains, but I'm actually picking that book as well because that is a wonderfully fantastic bonkers book. Spooky number 156, because Ooh. I love Harvey and they need to have a shout out every now and then. And then my last one is What If the Fantastic Four had different superpowers, and that is What If number six. Um, I just recently got that whole big, like, What If complete collection. Although it doesn't have the Shang-Chi story, so you have to buy that one separately. <laughs> and Shag just recently had like a what if episode, and, and that was great. So you think that brings the newsstand to a conclusion, but, but of course it doesn't, because there's one more thing we have to talk about. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. <laughs> He's losing his touch. This month, six issues this month. Only six d- issues. Down from, I believe it was 13. 18 last month. 18, 18, 18 last month. It was a recession. (laughs) It's funny that we say he's fallen when he has six issues. (laughs) More than Batman. (laughs) Hey, Sean, damn you anyway. Now I have to go out and find that Challengers of the Unknown. (laughs) I don't actually own that, but just your little description of it. I have to have that now. I'm sorry. And you know what the best worst thing is? It's a multi-part saga. So you yeah. can't just get there's that some, one. There's some wild stories Damn in there. You. <laughs> Quick, do it before this episode airs. That way you'll beat all the people going to eBay. That cover, Jim, is by Rich Buckler. And he did some of the early issues along with Mike Nasser, I think, and did a couple. I wasn't sure, but I just looked it up. And this one has an early Keith Giffen art. Wow. Okay. All right. You guys ready to move on to part two? Yes. Part two is Robin in Cavalier Con Game. So we open with a familiar image, killing him off, robbing a bank. But this time, Robin is swinging down to stop him. Robin acrobats out of the way of his goo gun and throws his batarang at Killer Moth to slow him down. But Killer Moth disappears in a puff of smoke. After Robin cleans up like a good boy wonder by picking up his batarang, which has somehow moved from where it fell, we see that it was not Killer Moth at all, but the Cavalier using camouflage tech from the Isle of a Thousand Thrills. The story that keeps on giving. <laughs> Our pal Lieutenant Tatum and Robin compare notes as Robin discovers a micro dot tracer on his batarang. A few minutes later, he hops on his cycle and races to the countryside. Cavalier tails him and finds an enormous fake tree. And then Robin exits through a trick door in the tree. Cavalier enters this Robin's roost and finds evidence that Robin isn't even human. There is a giant nest for him to rest in, 
food pellets from a replicator, and even a communications device for the planet Nibor. Then, of course, Robin shows up. We get a fight with a little swordplay, acrobatics, and Robin takes him to jail. In our Rosakis wrap-up, Babs wonders where did all that alien stuff come from, but Dick plays it coy, not letting her know that he got Superman to help with a gag on Cavalier. At the same time, Killer Moth and Cavalier end up in adjoining jail cells, naturally, and try to salvage some pride by sharing the secrets that they discovered. But Cavalier points out Batman can't be Jason Bard because he was fighting crime while Jason was in Vietnam. And Killer Moth calls out that Robin can't be an alien from the planet Nibor, since dummy, that is simply Robin spelled backwards. The end. Jim, Craig, thoughts on part two? Go for it, Craig. Go ahead, Craig. You first. Uh, well. We're ready for your dissertation on this. <laughs> where, where, where to start, right? <laughs> where does one start? <laughs> that big bird's nest, wouldn't that have made a great cover? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Craig wins the podcast. The thing that comes to mind is if you can get Superman to come in and do all this stuff, why don't you just get Superman to pick up the bad guys in jail? (laughs) The thing I did want to say is that there's the incident, the strange incident of the Batarang near the tree. Yes. And so in one panel, it's right near the tree. And then in a couple panels, it's like a foot away from the tree. Yep. And that turns out to be, they they have a footnote. Did you spot that clue reader? Check out (laughs) panel eight, panel 15, blah, blah, blah. So the fact that the Batarang had moved was essential in unraveling the the goings on here. But the problem with a, a clue like that is you don't know if it's, it was intended to be that or if it was just the the artist being lazy and didn't quite draw it. <laughs> so i mean i've i've run into i mean not too long ago there was a story i was writing and that had a, a mystery angle to it and you could very well have chalked up a clue that i planted to the fact that i just didn't draw it that well and it might not have matched up to the later picture so there's that otherwise it's a criticism proof story <laughs> the word we generally use craig is bonkers <laughs> the one thing you mentioned the batarang before you go craig i just want to say i love the part on page 17 where robin shows us how the batarang folds up and it weighs and he's checking it out I love that kind of stuff. And that was really cool. I knew Sean would, would like that too, but you know, you mentioned the battering, so I thought I'd bring it up there. How about you, Jim? What are your thoughts? You say bonkers and I say beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> if the Batgirl thing kind of came back to me as I was reading it, I hit the Robin part and it was like, oh, wait a minute, this is that story. <laughs> and it all came back to me with the tree, the whole the whole thing in the tree. So we get to the Robin's roost or whatever the hell you want to call it. I mean, what a, what a great idea. And Craig is absolutely right. If you want to put Superman to this extent of use, just have him do everything. I want to know what happened to this thing after. (laughs) Did he say, Superman, could you go ahead and take that apart for me? What I really, really love is all the signs that are both in English and some alien language. Why? I'm going to bring this up again. We are still riffing off of the 66 Batman show where everything in the Batcave must be labeled. The drinking water is clearly labeled. (laughs) I just love that. Robin is the only one that uses this, but he needs to be reminded where the nourishment dispenser is (laughs) and the Earth Nibor communications terminal. I just love that. Who spent all that time coming up with the alien letters? I'm I'm thinking it's probably Kryptonian. Yeah, it could be Kryptonian. 
yeah, tune in. That's right. good. It's so fun, but then we get to the rest chamber in the nest, and then it gets a little goofy. <laughs> okay, then I'm going to give you bonkers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, this whole thing about Dick not wanting to tell Babs why because you know what when you have a friend like superman you just keep that quiet because you know what i mean it's super sexy to the chicks (laughs) he's trying he's still trying how you did all of that he is super (laughs) i think babs probably has it figured out babs is pretty smart babs is the brain of the outfit without question yeah and why does killer moth have his mask on in jail unless i miss something like did he have it permanently affixed with adhesive x know. oh sorry wrong company <laughs> the only thing i'm gonna add i'm gonna riff on what you said like superman making all this to capture cavalier <laughs> that's the thing like i could understand if this were one of the heavy hitters this were two-faced doesn't superman have something better to do i yeah, could understand Mongo. building a treehouse for that superman to, we need yeah. to catch mongol from war world <laughs> yeah. yeah i'll whip this up a whole ruse for you robin <laughs> the other thing is as soon as the cavalier sees this stuff Robin shows up at the door and hauls him away. It's not like playing a long game or anything where hideout is going to amount to anything. It's like there for minutes and then it's done. It's totally to mess with him, which I think is hysterical. I mean, if you think about it, they're pretty low stakes in this whole story, right? The heroes are never in danger. They figure it out. It's similar to the wedding story a couple issues ago that we had where Batgirl and Robin are on to the con early on. You know what this is? is? This is an extension of super dickery, right? (laughs) It's like, we're not just going to capture these villains. We're going to mess with them first. But you know why? Because we can and it's fun. Yes. Because we're not getting enough kicks as it is running around in costumes and, and beating up criminals. We we need to mess with them a little bit too. But guys, I absolutely love that whole aspect of this story. It is so fun. Again, I want to know what happened to it. And Bob Rosaka should have used it again somewhere. You know what it reminds me of is one of my most favorite Silver Age stories is Robin and Jimmy Olsen have the Aerie. The Aerie. I oh, love that yeah. story. I read that yeah. story. And it's like, this is sort of the airy adjacent. <laughs> it's easy to pick this stuff apart decades down the line. Sure. But at the time, you know, this is what you wanted to read comics for. I mean, I, I've, got fun. No, I've got no business criticizing stuff like this because when I was writing stories for Julie Schwartz, this was the kind of stuff that I would yep, pull that to. They would so. want, that they would want, right? Don't get me wrong. I love this because it is, it's not only of its time, but it's of about a decade or so before its time too. It's fun stuff. So here's a question. Cavalier does not commit a crime, I don't think, in this story. <laughs> Does he? <laughs> have you seen his outfit? Yeah, well, we have a fashion critic who listens to us. She, I'm sure, will have something to say about the outfit. Of course, it's not the literally the federal crime of Killer Moth's leggings. <laughs> there is a crime because he impersonates a tree. Oh. <laughs> well, no, wait. Illegal bugging. When I was a kid, I had access to a number of Golden Age comics. The Cavalier was a character that I noticed in advertising. I would see ads for the cover of Batman. He would show up at least a a couple of times enough to make an impression on me. And I was curious about who this character was, but I never saw him in a story. And so I do appreciate that this book existed and gave the opportunity to bring back some of those characters that uh, had not been used in a long, long time. Not that it turned out to be any fantastic. If you pull Batman 66 fans, 
the Cavalier can sometimes end up kind of high on the list of comic book villains who would have fit in very well in the show. Sure. And sometimes, and sometimes you'll find some of their own. We're almost surprised sometimes that they did not mind, you yeah. know, him. Yeah. Easy costume, flamboyant. Yeah. The, the yeah. whole bit, yeah. Honestly, I would have rather have had him than Art Carney as the archer. <laughs> <laughs> Unless Art Carney was playing the Cavalier. All right. So anything else out of the story? If not, I'm going to move on. <laughs> I think we pretty much covered that. Covered it. Let's go. But before we go, we mentioned Lee Elias, and he is the penciler for the story. So I'm going to do a little segment, Bat Family History. And this is his only contribution to Batman Family. And I have some sources from Wikipedia and Lambiac and the Grand Comic Database that I'll put in the show notes. And he was born in Manchester, England in 1920. And emigrated to the U.S. when he was a young boy. And like some of the other Golden Age artists we've profiled, he studied art at Cooper Union and the Art Students League in New York. He made his debut at Fiction House in 1943. And until 46, he collaborated on series like Captain Wings, Suicide Smith, Firehair, Ref Ryan, and Space Rangers. So cool stuff. And after leaving Fiction House in 46, he worked for several different companies. For Marvel Timely, he worked on Submariner briefly. And for DC, he had a lot of credits, including The Flash, where he co-created The Fiddler, Green Lantern, and issues of All-Star Comics. But his biggest contribution in the Golden Age was probably his work on The Black Cat for Harvey Comics. For those who don't know, The Black Cat was a stunt woman who turned crime fighter. I've read a few of those stories, and they're pretty good, actually. The series was praised by comics historian Trina Robbins for its, quote, logical and, quote, straightforward approach in contrast to more fantasy-oriented titles like Wonder Woman. Elias worked as both a penciler and an inker on the series with an art style largely influenced by artists such as Milt Kenneff. In fact, Elias worked for a period as Kenneth's assistant on Terry and the Pirates and used the same style for the comic book version of Terry and the Pirates, which he illustrated, which I didn't know that. However, Elias left comic books for a while after the 1954 publication of Seduction of the Innocent, which apparently used four of his black cat panels as examples of depraved comic art. So during this time, he worked mainly on some strips, including a two-year stint as an assistant to Al Cap on Lil Abner. His best-known strip was Beyond Mars, which ran from 52 to 55 and was co-created with Jack Williamson, the science fiction writer. In 58, he was back in comics, working mainly for DC. He did a lot of Green Arrow. I think, Greg, you mentioned that in Adventure Comics and later World's Finest. A bunch of stories in My Greatest Adventure, House of Mystery, Tales of the Unexpected, stuff like that. Uh, and for example, he and Bob Haney co-created the supervillain Eclipso. In the House of Secrets, number 61, from 1963, Elias only drew the first two appearances of the character and was succeeded on the feature by the some guy named Alex Tone. Not bad. He also <laughs> drew the Tommy Tomorrow appearances in Showcase from 62 to 63. And I have to point out, I am contractually obligated by our network, specifically Rob Kelly, to say that <laughs> Lee Elias's greatest contribution to Western literature was, of course, co-creating Ultra, the multi-alien. <laughs> that, of course, was in the seminal Mystery in Space number 103 from 1965 with former Bat Family history subject Dave Wood. And then from the 60s to the early 70s, Elias returned to his native England. His comic work was sparse during that time, but in 72, he came back to American comic books, working mainly on DC's various horror titles. By the mid-70s, he started working on some secondary, I'll put that in quotes, Marvel Comics titles, including Power Man and even Max Romero's favorite, The Human Fly. He illustrated several issues of that, including number one. And that was about the time of the story we just read. His last major project was The Rook 
for Warren publishing a black and white time travel series, which played to his strengths as science fiction artists. After the Rook was canceled, Elias retired from comics, though he continued teaching at Bern Hogarth's School for Visual Arts and at, wait for it, the Kubert School. Although, alas, this was long before our fearless network leader attended that institution. Otherwise, he would have been riddled with questions about Ultra. Elias passed away in 1998, and according to Mike, had 271 story credits in comic books. But I think that's short because Mike's only list one issue of Black Cat. And Grand Comics Database has him with over 50 issues of that. Plus, when you add in his comic strip work, he certainly had a fantastic career, including some of our favorites here at the network. Anyway, thanks for letting me spend a little time with him. Let's move on to Bat Branding. In this segment, we're going to talk about the non-story pages for the issues. Lots of great stuff. Sean, you want to kick us off? We're going to start off with a Hostess ad, and you're all excited, but it's a Hostess ad for fruit pies, which are horrible. <laughs> uh, but... It swings back around the other way because this is cuckoo, literally cuckoo, because Penguin is fighting cuckoo clocks. Now, these cuckoo clocks literally look like they came out of Alice in Wonderland because like the cuckoo clocks have like bird legs and wings. And <laughs> they're making off with the hostess fruit pies. So poor Pengi. After page four that I don't think we'd see today, it's an ad that says <laughs> indoor indoor by the way <laughs> bb gun fun it's a whole new game and there's a picture of a happy american family where dad and little sister are watching tommy uh shoot the gun at the target that's in place of where the tv should be and mom is looking on with happiness this could be gabriel horn's winner right here if we uh <laughs> wanted to talk about that but wow when you look at stuff like that it's amazing what was in comic books back in the day but does it have a thing that tells time <laughs> So the next page, there's a half page ad for Slim Jims with a werewolf on it. We like to talk about food at the reunion. Does anybody like Slim Jims? I never like them. Despite my name, I've never, ever had one before. Okay. <laughs> there was a period in my past when I uh, didn't mind them. Okay. I think they're okay. It's definitely not a candy. Absolutely not. But <laughs> yeah, like if, if you like, you know, like smoked bologna or something like that, like they're fine they're good right. listen at, at first glance i thought this illustration was by jack davis the great mad magazine artist but yeah wow. I, I don't know i wondered i almost agree with you i wondered i and i couldn't really figure it out myself well he must have done a lot of commercial because last issue we had him he did the famous spalding ad that has Dr. J in it. And yeah, we talked yes. about that one last month or the month before. He clearly was doing that kind of stuff. So very well could have been. The line work sort of looked like him and some of the background details look like him. The, the face of the werewolf, not necessarily so much. So I, I, I don't know. I can't decide. Yeah. What they the got... They got Alex Toth to do that face since they wouldn't let <laughs> him do Superman's face on the treasury. You know what? It does look a little bit like El Plastino, though. Yeah. I can't decide. Listeners, we want to hear from you. So our next ad is a Heroes World ad. And the main draw is super capes. And <laughs> my guess is they probably don't look like this. The other thing that's really weird is there is a wallet. So you can get a Superman or Batman wallet. But... It says, carry your wallet the super way. 
So it looks like this is something called Superway, which <laughs> just, just the way the ad is laid out, it's so weird. You can get superhero toy watches and you get watches in Batman, Spider-Man, Superman, Captain America. There's also bingos and checkers. And a lot of times we'll talk about what we would have purchased on this ad. And I can tell you right now, I will buy the checkers set because I literally just checked on eBay. That checkers set is going for two hundred and seventy five dollars <laughs> is it just regular checkers with like a superman sticker on each of the pieces is that what they are like well not a sticker but it's like a cardboard insert that you would put in wow. and that's the bargain one because wow. there is another one going for six hundred dollars wow <laughs> rush out now get it now came through joe kubert's studio yeah a lot of the catalog art for the larger catalogs was kubert now, I will tell you something that would be worth $600 would be two treasuries. And those two treasuries <laughs> would be Superman versus Wonder Woman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I know Rudolph gets flack, especially from Rob Kelly, host of Treasury Cast, because he has a lot of those. I like those Rudolph stories a lot. I wish there would be a collection of all of those Rudolph stories. Yeah. Sean, I'm going to take back every bad thing I ever said or thought about you. <laughs> Because I That's totally a lot. agree. I have every single one of my DC and Marvel Treasury editions that I have ever owned, but one. And I'm not mm. sure why it's gone. And it's the Rudolph one. Ooh. And not the Rudolph. Rudolph had like seven of them, right? Well, yeah, it's one of them. I mean, I, I've identified it on comics.org. If I'm not mistaken, that was Bob Oskner did Rudolph? No, it's Shelley Mayer. I was going to say, my beloved Shelley Mayer, the co creator of the Justice Society of America, and Ma Hunkle, the original Golden <laughs> Age Red Tornado, my second favorite character ever after Batman. But yeah, I was thinking that Osner had done some Rudolph also. But yeah, Shelly definitely did a lot of that. But yeah, Sean, I'm right there with you, buddy. Collect those. I just, I don't get that. Unless it's got something to do with if Rudolph is still owned by someone else. That's interesting. This particular Rudolph design reminds me very much of the Fleischer cartoon. You know, yeah. I wondered if it was some connection between this and that cartoon of the time. Very interesting. I'm looking at the, and this might have been one of the earlier ones. They're reprinted from 1954. And the artist they list is someone named Rube Grossman, who I don't know. Okay. Check another Rudolph treasury because there's so many. I'm looking at this ad and this particular Rudolph is signed by Shelley. Shelly Mayer. Yeah. I'm seeing that now. Yeah. That's not the one that I had though, but I did I did have one and I but that's yeah. not the one. Yeah, there's one number limited collect edition C33. It's Sheldon Mayer is the writer and penciled with this guy. Rube Grossman had a second story and he did the cover. Okay. They were popular. They even they even did a summertime one. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, Rudolph's summer, summer adventure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rudolph was popular. Not as popular as Richie Rich, but pretty popular. <laughs> He could have been a contender. <laughs> After page five of the Man Bat story, we have a black and white ad for TV posters. And it has another 70s staple, Farrah Fawcett and Linda Carter, Starsky and Hutch and Rocky. Giant wall-sized posters in full color. The black and white ad advertised. I'm going to pick <laughs> It was $100 more to have a color ad. And Sandy Mart just didn't want to pop for it. <laughs> so the next one is on the next page. It is an important announcement from DC announcing the DC Superstars Society. Any of you guys a member? I am. 
You are? I dug out. I actually found this is the Batman chapter. Now, what you did is you sent in an envelope and they sent you like this application. It's a four page thing. And it's got a picture of Batman in the front. And I have a few of the other ones. And it's got a, a cool quiz. One of the uh, questions, Sean, you'll love is one of the foes Batgirl and Robin fought called herself the Joker's daughter. Whose daughter is she really? And that is that is one of the questions. Very cool. And what is Alfred's last name? Stuff like that. And I have written in the back in my 1977 handwriting, I got two wrong. So I feel very bad that I got two wrong out of these 10, 12 questions. But none of my coupons are cut out. So I don't think I sent it in. I don't have like the patch and stuff. So Craig, do you have all that stuff? No, maybe. Maybe I've been living a lie all this time. I thought that was the extent of the... This thing? So I had more to do. That's just the application. It says in the back, you're supposed to cut out and says to become a lifetime member of the DC Superstar Society... Just mail the coupon or a facsimile along with $4 today. So you send $4 okay. and you get a giant 17 by 22 poster featuring your favorite DC superstars in full dazzling color. And that poster is by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. name. And it's a high quality three inch cloth patch for your jacket, jeans or shirt. Insignia decal, a full color insignia transfer to put on your T-shirt. So you iron on to a T-shirt and a certificate and a membership card. And discount coupons to save you money on subscriptions to Dollar Comics, Amazing World of DC Comics, Direct Currents, and your regular favorite DC titles. I, I am baffled by this because I was there. There's my here's my copy of yeah. the book we're talking about. This is my original copy. I don't even ever remember this. I pulled these out tonight, and I have a pile. I have like a folder, and I have the Batman. Wow. Justice Society, Justice League, Green Arrow, and Black Canary. They got teamed up. Superman, Green Lantern, Flash, Wonder Woman. I can't imagine why I wouldn't have done that. At least. Well, these were free. You just had to send in a self-addressed stamped envelope. Right. That's. I mean, I would have at least gotten the free thing. I don't get it. A year or so ago, I saw an article online about it, and, and I was reading it, and I, you know, then I said, wow, where was I? Why wouldn't I have read that page? Maybe it was because it was so boring, you know? It's just like a typewritten... And they didn't have art. If they had put some of that Garcia Lopez art on here, maybe we would have... Can you imagine what that poster goes for these days? All this time I've been living a lie. I thought I was a member, but I don't think I... I, I got the application. But I never got that other stuff. So I already scanned the four-page application thing with the quiz and everything. And I'll put that in the show notes for people to look at in our gallery post. But it is cool. And mm. I thought when I pulled it out, before I read it tonight, I pulled it out and I said, oh, this is the thing. And then I read it all. And I'm like, oh, this is just the application that I never filled out and sent in. <laughs> so two things. Uh, echoing, echoing what Jim said, I can't believe that I never sent away for this. Because as a kid, that, that send a self-addressed stamped envelope and you get something. I did that all the time. Yeah, like if it yeah. was on TV for Zoom or something like that. Or if I had a book that had free things that you could get. And I think every single thing I sent away for that. So yeah, something like this. I must not have understood what it was. I didn't know what it was because I would have sent away yeah. for each and every one of these. The other thing I want to say is I'm 99.9% .9 sure. I think Zoom Yukonori had all of these, oh. posted all of them. Listeners, we're going to try to find the link. I'm almost positive Zoom had all of them, posted all of them. But I know his son created new ones in the exact same style as cool. this one. I know Firestorm is one of them. So we'll also link to that 
in the show notes because those things are beautiful. Like his work is both father and son. Their work is phenomenal. It's, it's just great. Paul here visiting from my reunion food coma, also known as post-production to mention that I am thoroughly ashamed that in the discussion we just had about the DC superstar society, I completely forgot about the existence of a back issue article on this very topic. Thanks to Sean for pointing it out. Issue number 130 from 2021 has a comprehensive article on this very topic by John Wells. The article talks about the underwhelming announcement ad that we just discussed and that it was missing some key 1970s characters like Commandy, Jonah Hex, and Aquaman. Sorry, Rob. The quiz questions were written by DC staffer Michael Catron, who put together the four-page applications. Catron was interviewed by Wells and indicates that orders were just too low. He thought that there were only about 2,000 spread across all 12 chapters. Due to the DC implosion, the club was canceled at the same time that the Amazing World of DC Comics fanzine was canceled. Catron's job was eliminated and he went to work for the Comics Journal. None of the packages were ever produced, so I'm glad I never sent in my $4, but the poster was repurposed for the Superman fan club that they tried again in 1980, despite that only having about 3,000 members. It, too, was quickly canceled. I'll include a picture of the poster and a link to this issue of Back Issue for those who want to read more. I will also include a link to the Yukonori fan pages that Sean mentioned. Back to the reunion. All right, let's move on. So real quick, right before Batmail Family, we have a nice ad, Kaluta, awesome cover for Doorway to Nightmare, Madame Xanadu, first appearance. Prepare yourself for a new kind of mystery book. It's just a cool series. Gorgeous cover. We're going to move on to the first letters page, which is Batmail Family. And of course, we're going to invite Beth Montaloni, Thomas Krasker, and Mike White onto the show to talk about your experience having your letter printed. As we can tell, it works because we have a letter writer on the show today. Some of the things I wanted to point out, Beth talks about Mambat and she says, all in all, Mambat is a nice change of pace. It manages to be at once absurd and realistic. Rally Round Robin provided another dose of realism and escapism. I think this is the first time I've seen a comics hero writing a term paper. <laughs> Boy, could I sympathize with Dick. <laughs> <laughs> Took him three issues to write the darn thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then Thomas Krasker said something very interesting upon hindsight. Lori Elton is to Dick Grayson what Iris is to Barry Allen. A companion, a foil, a pleasure, an inspiration, and a genuine personality with energy and determination to assist her boyfriend slash husband. Seeing how this magazine has become DC's center for exposed identities, I'm hoping that Dick won't be able or eager to withhold his secret from Lori much longer. And it will only be maybe like a year or two until we never hear from her again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the next page has another one of Batman's Bureau of Missing Villains, which are the fun cut and paste that I imagine Bob Rizak is doing in the production room at DC. This one stars Mr. Polka Dot. Now a movie star with a much more imposing name of Polka Dot Man. Somehow you learn about Braille. I, I'm not quite sure I followed it in this little story, but you learn about Braille from Mr. Polka Dot. So very cool. Isn't it a good feeling to know that you were reading a comic book that a young James Gunn was reading? It's <laughs> <at the same laughs> hard to believe, isn't it? Polka Dot Man now on the, on the big screen. And now we're going to move on to super special extra feature, the Batmail Family Special Delivery. And before we get into it, we're going to invite Gary Leach, Roma Perfechki, Carlton Donahue, Didi Linnae, R. Stephen Sherman Jr., Calvin Johnson, Pat Bond, and Dave Shore. Even if I've butchered your names, you're more than invited to come onto the show. 
And all of these people uh, have written in, in response to our guest, Craig Bolden. So it can happen. It can happen. You can appear on this show. <laughs> Craig, do you want to tell us about your letter that you wrote into Batman Family and what that experience was like, if, if you have any recollections of that? Yeah, that's the thing. You know, first of all, I purposely didn't go back and read that letter, and I didn't read these letters. I thought I would just sort of discover them here tonight. I remember what the letter was about. I wrote a letter. It showed up in uh, Batman Family number 12. But I never wrote a lot of letters to comics. I've been trying to think what motivated me to pick up my pen and do it that time. And I, I can't, I, I don't know. I must have just been in that mood that day. The gist of the letter was that I felt that Robin was just so much, he was a sidekick. So if you take him away from Batman, he was still a sidekick. You just didn't have the guy that he was a sidekick to. I felt that something needed to shake up the character so he could stand on his own. And the other thing that I made a point of was that as this issue's lead story points out, Robin was being identified as Robin Bird, the bird Robin, the flying creature Robin, as evidenced by that huge nest in his huge tree there. But when the character was created, it seemed to me that the name and the the style of the costume, the, the tunic and the boots and stuff, were meant to evoke Robin Hood, mm -hmm. adventurer Robin Hood. So I thought a Robin bird, I mean, I like Robins, but they're not that heroic. <laughs> I, I think the association was made because a bat is a flying creature and his Robin is a flying creature. But I thought it would make more sense to get him back to that swashbuckling sort of Robin Hood type thing. And then what I thought might be a good adjustment would be to make him the leader of his own little group or give him a partner of his own or something. And that would be a way of getting him off of the sidekick position. And that sort of was proved true in the Teen Titans. I don't right. think I drew that comparison when I wrote the letter, but obviously he's the leader of the Teen Titans and he worked very well in that position. But when he's out by himself, even though he has been around a lot longer, Batgirl gets the billing in these stories, Batgirl and Robin, you know, so he, he's always going to be in that secondary position. So anyway, that's all I wanted to say. That's all I wanted to say. And then all this happens. <laughs> Before we go to the I love the fact that in your original letter, you said the Robin Hood influence and that he could have his own group of people. And he said, just don't call them the Merry Men. So I <laughs> exactly. love that. I love that you put that in. That's great. It is interesting because your letter kicked off this big debate. I do think they kind of picked it 50-50, the pros of that, the cons of that, that kind of thing. My favorite letter was Calvin Johnson, who is kind of like in agreement with you. He says, I like the idea of Robin having assistance. Robin Rooters would make a great assistance, but I don't mean those man-crazy females from Batman <laughs> Family number 12. I mean, civilized, intelligent guys and girls who are thinking of becoming police officers, lawyers, reporters, or investigators. They sincerely want to help Robin and can gain experience by doing so. Note, I said helping, not getting in the way. I think maybe Rob talks about this, the JLA satellite and satellite duty. Why are you having heroes do that? when you could have people who would go through a background check and do it. So he's very much in agreement with you. And there are people who are against you and the, the listeners can go and read those letters. I'm not going to read those letters, but yeah, but yeah it, they did a good job of kind of keeping the debate going back and forth in the special delivery. That's very much the hand of Julie Schwartz. And I guess Barbara Zakis was putting the letters pages yeah. together. Yeah. They were, they were very careful to balance out opinions. There's no telling what the majority actually thought, but 
it made for a good balance on the letters page. I wanted to say that this Gary Leach who wrote the first letter, he has some comic book credits. Well, I was wondering if it's the same guy. He did Miracle Man. There is a Gary Leach that did Miracle Man. Is it the same guy? Because I thought he was British. It's not that guy. This Gary Leach, he has credits, the translations for the Disney comics, a lot of the Disney comics. Really? Cool. Yeah, I saw the name and I associated it with the Miracle Man guy. He's British. And this guy's from Springfield, Missouri. I was like, well, that's not the same guy. But you say it's somebody else. That's really cool. Yeah. Hey, Craig, you know, even though Bob refers to your suggestion as unorthodox. Yeah. I mean, honestly, to my mind, you were really, at that time, tapping into something that led to Nightwing. Yeah. Well, yes. I, I mean, mean, obviously. Yes. In the end, they followed my advice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, seriously, though, you were picking up on something that, again, the people were the creators or editors and whoever were just stepping onto the path that led to Nightwing and some serious thought about really one of the first real superheroes to actually grow up yeah. in comics and i love that people were putting some serious thought into robin cannot be a teenager forever which is really breaking out of the mold of superheroes i think that's really cool and obviously it sparked as we can see some debate here that a lot of other people were thinking about it too and then marv wolfman and whoever else were thinking these thoughts and then not too much longer later we have nightwing yeah well thanks for that observation now but that time the thinking was you just couldn't change these characters you just couldn't it would i mean they had merchandising to keep in mind but this costume that robin wears it's good for a kid but it's not made for it's not made for a man but you know what they solved that he became nightwing and then they bring in jason todd right exactly you can keep that costume and all of the merchandising and everything so they they had their cake and ate it too really Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, and then at some point, much later down the line, they flip their thinking, and now as many variations as you can come up with for costumes and stuff, you can make a toy out of each one of them. You know? Exactly. I did look up Gary Leach on Mike's Amazing World, Craig, and the Gary Leach I was thinking of, the Miracle Man guy, has two R's in his name, Gary, but Gary with oh. one R, this guy is not listed on Mike's, at least Mike's Amazing World doesn't list him. So just for our listeners, so we definitely this is not the same guy, but he could be somewhere else. Maybe I'll try to do a little more research. Maybe it's like color or face favorite how they add a u maybe when it's transferred they add the r for the name <laughs> okay on that note sean we are going to move on to the second story and this is target the shotgun sniper starring man Bat. it's nine pages written by bob rizakis penciled by michael golden inked by michael golden mm. reprinted in legends of the dark knight michael golden hardcover 2019 and this is man Bat in Target, the shotgun sniper. Our story begins as Mambat is on the prowl for the shotgun sniper. He thinks he has spied someone upon a roof who it might be, but it turns out that that man only has a vendetta against the neighborhood pigeons. Our scene switches to the office of Captain Daniels as Mambat drops in on him to ask for any leads to find the shotgun sniper. But these two definitely do not have the Batman-Gordon relationship because Daniels makes Mambat leave without any info. Then we see Jason Bard visiting Francine again to ask about Kirk's whereabouts and to hint around that Kirk might be the shotgun sniper. She invites him in and he begins to question her about some of her old boyfriends. When he suggests that Kirk might soon be the subject of an episode of any show that you'd find on the Oxygen Network, Francine decides to use her baby bump to push Jason on out of the apartment without his tea. Jason decides to wait for Kirk to come home and that the best place to do this 
would be on top of the roof of the building. I hope that he doesn't hold a grudge against pigeons. <laughs> Meanwhile, Manbat is flying around his neighborhood when his Manbat sense starts ping, ping, pinging away in a misunderstanding that's three's company worthy. Manbat thinks that Jason is the shotgun sniper. And while Manbat is about to swoop in to take him out, we see that the real the shotgun sniper is loading up. But just whom is going to be the victim? Maybe a pigeon? What do you guys think about the story? Let's start with you, Jim. You know, the tonal shift here from the first story to the second story is yeah. confounding and really <laughs> amazing. And, and that it's the same writer. I'm going to say that Bob was far more inspired by the character of Man Bat than Batgirl and Robin. Like I said, the shift here is really incredible. And a lot of that is, of course, the Michael Golden art. And there, again, that shift in art from, from Lee Elias. Michael Golden did one of the greatest single issues of Star Wars ever. He did one issue of the Marvel Star Wars series early on in the run that's just gorgeous and is still one of my favorites to this day. I was never a big Man Bat fan. I enjoyed the original Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill story, but when they were pushing him to become a superhero, I just, I don't know, I was never never really into it. I could see why his book got cancelled after two issues. But again, I mean, that's really a wonderful thing that you can have two such diverse stories in one book again written by the same guy the tone is so much more serious and so lovely cliffhanger where you have three different people lined up in this guy's sights and one of them being francine mm -hmm. a pregnant fancy in shotgun snipers sights good stuff not my cup of tea but still good stuff what do you think of it craig well as i said earlier the the only man bet that i i really was invested in was the, the neil adams and uh frank robbins man bet oh oops <laughs> is it frank robbins not denny o'neill no frank Rob Oops. so when i first got the book i probably didn't spend too much time on this and looking at it now i think it's fine the shotgun sniper is sort of a complete mystery. We don't know anything about him, so it's basically just a character piece. And uh, I'm curious. I'm going to have to uh, find the next issue and see how this turns out. <laughs> well, there you go. It worked. Then. <laughs> yeah. Michael Golden, I appreciated his work, but it didn't really click with me until I saw his work on the NAM. Mm -hmm. And I thought that stuff was fantastic. And was this like one of his very first professional jobs? Very early. I will tell you exactly in a minute, but eventually left the Man Bat series and went off and did the Micronauts from Marvel. And I think after that, after uh, the Micronauts is when he did the NAM. But let me verify that. And I know somewhere in there he did, is it the first two issues of Marvel Fanfare with Spider-Man and the X-Men on the Savage Land? Now, I don't have the chronology in front of me, but it's somewhere in there. Those Micronaut issues are just to this day. I don't know if those were ever reprinted. No, never. I just actually reread those like a couple yeah. months ago when I had COVID, Jim. And they're really, especially the first dozen. He did about the first dozen yeah. issues. Uh, yeah, the history is apparently he did three Marvel stories in the Defenders. And he did a Marvel's classic, A Pit in the Pendulum. Interesting. And then he did a bunch of Batman, Batman Family. He worked on Man Bat all these stories then he went to micronauts and uh by the time september of 78 came around there's micronauts and then the nom comes around 1986 so it's a few years till we get to the nom so the micronauts is that's a toy that's owned by a toy company yeah and they can't reprint it because they brought in a bunch of marvel characters the x-men were in it bunch yeah. of other Marvel characters. Doctor Doom, I think, was in it. So Marvel can't reprint it because they don't have Micronauts rights. And whoever owns the Micronauts, I think IDW had it and tried a series a few years ago, which was terrible. I 
I think I bought one issue because yeah. I have very fond memories of the series, the Micronauts. Yeah. It was Mego, but it was it was an American version of a Japanese toy. And so it was written by Bill Mantlo, who created all the personalities. Again, the first dozen issues are fantastic. They have Michael Golden art. It went 58 issues and then a second series of another 20. And it was one of Marvel's early direct only books because it sold really well in comic shops and not very well at all in the newsstands. Interesting. This Jason Todd strikes me as being a fairly, not Jason Todd. Jason Bard. He seems like a fairly nondescript character to me. He was briefly a love interest for Barbara Gordon mm-hmm. before this, before she went to Washington, D.C., and he was injured in Vietnam, and that's why he used the canes. I just talked about this on a Batman podcast. Batman has him pose as Batman so that the villain, the spook, will do away with Batman, but it's Jason Bard so that the real Batman can be elsewhere. But I think that was like one of my very first exposures to the character of Jason Bard. And the book acts like, oh, we all know who Jason Bard is. And you know, they give you some notes on him or whatever, but it's like, oh, I don't know who's Jason Bard. He, he's got a bad leg. And he had a few solo strips as backups, as I recall. And then we won't spoil what happens with him and Batman family in the next few issues. So you have to listen. Okay. This was my introduction to Jason Bard. Like, I had no idea who this person was at all. I love Man Bat as a character. I love Michael Golden's art. I think it is absolutely beautiful. For me, Michael Golden is probably in the top five of my favorite artists. There's such a weight, but a fluidity to his art. I literally could stare at these pages. I think I have no interest whatsoever in Micronauts, but I am very much interested in Michael Golden's art. So I think I'm oh, going to at least look into them. You can borrow mine, Sean. They're super fun. I love Man Batch Run and Batman Prime. Absolutely. But it wasn't until I went to synopsis this story that I realized that quote unquote nothing <laughs> happens. But still, I lo- but I love the story. Only real action is the thing with the pigeons. After that, <laughs> it's all dialogue. But it's still so engaging. Talky, talky, talky. But, but still, the way the panels are laid out and the word special effects, like the ping, 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 and this, it's just so fantastic looking. And then, of course, you get to that last page, which is action packed. But I know it sounds so silly, but just the pouring of the tea and all of that. This is all talking head stuff, but it's so interesting. And their clothing and the fashions and the apartment. And I know we rag on it, but could you imagine this with the inker is going to get rid of all of the backgrounds and everything? Like, it just would be hard. But Vince Coletta. Yeah, I didn't want to say it, but yeah, <laughs> I didn't want to invoke his spirit. But yeah, I just love the story, even though it's all set up for the next part. Yep. I mean, I'll just draw your attention at the bottom of page three of the story, bottom left corner, that panel of Man Bat. I mean, he looks really scary. Yeah. And then the two page sequence of Jason Bard talking to Francine. It's a lot of talking and they're she's making tea for him. But yeah. it builds a suspense. And I think that really has a lot to do with the way it's staged out in the art. Mm-hmm. Love how she throws him out. I think that's, that's my favorite part. Sean, you know, you called out the sound effects and I totally agree with you on that. Walt Simonson was doing very similar things with sound effects here. They weren't just more or less throwaway things that they actually became part of the beautiful art and he would do that same sort of thing where it would be in a very precise line across i really loved it right next to that wonderful shot of man bat is a panel where the scree is actually part of the swoosh of his flying that's the sound that he's making but it's almost like he's riding the sound that he's making yeah like i said him and walt simonson were really doing almost the exact same thing some really cool stuff with 
sound effects at that time. It's terrific. I did look up Jason Bard. He first appeared in 1969 in a few issues of Detective Comics. Hung around the Batman family. 82 was his last real appearance in an issue of Detective Comics, but he did come back in an issue of Batman and the Outsiders titled Goodbye. So I had to go back and read that one. <laughs> Only 42 appearances. I was going to say, I don't think he's ever been revived. Mm-mm. Not according to Mike's. Not post-crisis. He hasn't been around. So that's wow. That's really astounding. I got nothing else to say other than I agree with everything. I love this art is great. I love the way Francine looks. She's continuing to progress in her pregnancy over mm-hmm. this. There's yep. these few issues where she's very pregnant now. So, you know, that you know, the baby's going to show up soon. And the cliffhanger is just fabulous. So what say you guys? How about if we head out to the disco? We're going to take a trip to Gabriel's Horn, the hip happening hangout for the Teen Titans in the 1970s. We're going to talk about the most 1970s moments in the stories from any of the stories. Craig and Jim, what do you have? We'll start with the first story and then move on to Man Bat. Jim, how about you go first? For me, it's a couple of uses of language that are so 70s and the first one is fuzz calling the police fuzz i'm the biggest fan of adam 12 (laughs) adam 12 once it gets over the hump and into the 70s is all about coming down on the police and they're called everything in the book and especially pigs no but fuzz is one of them so so here in fuzz and then and then also broad yeah And Uh, and then, of course, Barbara does have to get the token women's lib speech. She's not the weaker sex. I've had that one too. Even as a kid, I always thought any women's lib reference always sounded so shoehorned. Here we go back to the Justice Society. The first appearance of Power Girl. (laughs) I I loathe that character. And I'm all for women's lib. I don't want to hear angry emails, but, but I loathe that character right off the bat. Because you know what? She was some male writer's version of women's lib. So those were my three little uses of language. How about you, Craig? Yeah, Jim took all mine. (laughs) Shut up, Fuzz and Bat Broad. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I had a feeling that would happen. Because they're so quintessential 70s. I grabbed something. Outside the scope of the story, I hope you don't mind. Uh, Uh, On one of the ad pages, this struck me as pretty darn 70s. There was a page of little ads, little classified ads type things. Yeah. And there's this one for, it's called Bionic Hand. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I see that now. Bionic Hand that you control, earn dollars, rush $1, lifelike, guaranteed. I don't know how you earn dollars with this thing, but you can get a Bionic (laughs) dollar that you can that is a great pull craig that is a riot craig you should have purchased it because it is guaranteed (laughs) so even if you would have trouble with it now they would have taken care of that for you get your dollar back (laughs) the mind boggles you know i'm almost glad that they don't say much more about what it is or what it does (laughs) because it could never match my imagination at it (laughs) <laughs> and it's a buy on it. Yeah, yeah. I imagine it's one of those grabbers, you know, that you that you have on a <laughs> stick and you pull the thing and it grabs something that's too high. <laughs> you know what? That's probably what it is. And I think you're right. <laughs> that's a pretty good price for one of those. <laughs> There's a fantastic book called Mail Order Mysteries. I think it's out of print, but there are copies around. That is the most wonderful book. And a guy took almost every single famous ad ever in comics to send away for things. And what he did is he presented 
what was in the comic, and then he had the reality. Oh man, <laughs> it is it's the most glorious book. I recommend it to anybody. It's called Mail Order Mysteries. So, Paul, I'll go next because I want to go last for Mambat. I had two from the first story, one in Batgirl's part, one in Robin's part. The Batgirl one is the fact that she calls Commissioner Gordon on a payphone. In the Robin story, Cavalier's tracker, it almost looks like an air hockey holder <laughs> that you would hit with the puck. That thing is huge. It's, it's, it's like a big button like, like you hit on it. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> and the fact that like, I don't know how it tells you where it is other than you have to be close to it and it'll start pinging. That's funny. It'll start beeping. It doesn't have a direction. It just has a, a light on it. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, I don't have anything else in part one. I had the payphone, Jason Bard being from Vietnam, women not the weaker sex. So I had all that stuff. Obviously, we have things like the phones and the technology and no helmets on the bikes. We've talked about all those things before. We talked about it some, uh, but I had it played out here. Superman playing tricks on people. Uh. Here's a little bit of a deep pull. The bank and the drugstores were like local stores. They were not national chains. Uh, <laughs> so that's a well, bit of a reach. Well, just that it says huge on the top of it, drugs. <laughs> <laughs> we don't see that anymore because... If we did that today, we'd have the wrong kind of people going, you know, lined up to get into that place. The sign in the bank says five and a half percent interest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're getting oh. closer. Yeah. <laughs> you guys have anything in the, in the Man Bat stories? I have one or two little ones in the Man Bat, and then little Sean wants to go last. No? So in Man Bat, we have a file cabinet and an ashtray. We talked about ashtrays last month. And the fact that Francine lets him in, yeah. <laughs> is that wouldn't happen today. Nobody's letting in a stranger. Here she is like seven months pregnant. Is he looks sincere. <laughs> so that's all I had, Sean. This was my weakest month for Gabriel. What about you? It's seemingly a small one, but it's a huge one to me. And I mean, like, fantastically huge. On page three of this Man Bat story, the first panel, in the past, we have talked about Barney Miller and how, how Lyndon could have played Commissioner Gordon. This police department is the 12th precinct. The 12th huh. precinct is from Barney Miller. Ah! And Barney Miller was huge. Like, it would be calling your camp 4077. This is the 12th precinct. Like, this is not an accident. This absolutely is an homage to Barney Miller. Nice one. It has to be. And I love Barney Miller. Barney Miller is a fantastic show from first episode to last. What a nice touch. And I've never noticed this before. Up above 12th Precinct headquarters, up above the window, it says 1938 AD. I wonder what that meant to Michael Golden, if anything at all. But what a nice little touch. I'm laughing about the radiator that Mambat sits on when he comes <laughs> in. Because the house that I grew up in in the 70s, that's the radiators that we had. And we had to set pans of water on top yeah. of the uh, humidifier. <laughs> yeah. We can't go past the guy on the very first page saying, sweet mama. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Gabriel Thorne was Stone's idea at the beginning of our podcast, and we've gotten such mileage out of it and such a lot of fun. Who would have thought? And we're always trying to outdo each other, so it's kind of fun. <laughs> I love the Barney Miller reference, Sean. You win that one this time, so that was great. Guys, I think we're finally done. That wraps it up. Sean and I want to thank our special guests, Craig Boldman and Jim Beard, for stopping by the reunion. Great job, guys. Would you guys like to remind our listeners where they can find you, Craig? Yes, uh, craigboldman.com. Mm -hmm. We will include a link to it. Social media, uh, you can find references to it there. So I'll look for you. 
All right. And Jim? I hope everybody will first go to Amazon and plug my name in to see my Amazon author page and all the fun, cool stuff that I have there. And then visit me on Facebook at my official page there, which is the Jim Beard and Becky Books page. Becky Books is my self-publishing house. And then I also have a co-publishing house called Flinch Books. And we do a lot of great pulp fiction books there, me and my publishing partner, John Bruning from Cleveland. But everything else that I do, you're going to know about through the Jim Beard and Becky Books page. Awesome. Again, thank you both for being on the show. We really had a great time. Craig, it was a super thrill to get an actual letter writer. We've been on this kick of reading everybody's names and then to have our listener recommend that was great. So anyway, guys, now we're going to hear a podcast promo. And when Sean and I return, we will read your listener feedback. Grab your bat microphone, it's time to start the show. Check out the Bat Pod with your host, Bill Beer. This was, cucumber this sandwiches. was an issue. <laughs> yes, have you ever had a cucumber sandwich? And his co-host, Joey Galvez. I mean, I like it, you know, cucumber water. Have you ever had that? It's so refreshing. It's, it's... Topic of the week. I really love the Michael Keaton Batman, the Tim Burton Batman. I thought you were going to mention Batman and Robin for a minute. <laughs> you know, George Clooney... Had you hello or character spotlights? The condiment king was a guy named Buddy Stanley, a, okay. a former stand-up comedian. But, you know, stump your co-host segments. Okay, where's your Batman card? Just go ahead and send that to me. Sorry, sorry. And we'll, and we'll rip bit. that up. <laughs> okay. You can find the Bat Pod on thenerdylegion.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, Google Play, and we're now on Stitcher. The Bat Pod is a proud member of the Nerdy Legion Network. Crime Fighting Collective, it's the Bat Pie. What the blue bacon? Welcome back. Now we will read and respond to your listener feedback for episode 14, Plastic Suits and Crazy Neighbors, with special guest Paul Wildenberger. So Sean, before we get started on the feedback, I thought I would share a story about a real-life bat and my real-life family. So my daughter's in college, as you know, and she was staying at school for the January term alone in her dorm and one morning she woke up and heard some rustling under the bed where her shoes were and lo and behold there was a real life bat when she <laughs> realized what it was she got out of the bat dorm like a you know what out of hell and called in the facilities who took it away but uh, help notice for our listeners I did not know this if a bat is in your room at night it may have bitten you and you wouldn't know it since the bites are really small and you won't know right away if the bat had rabies. So my wife ran down there, took her to the ER to get rabies shots, which is the only place they'll dispense the rabies shots. And she got four shots, including a tetanus shot that day and had to go back three more times for three additional shots. Now, apparently only 6% of bats actually have rabies. But if you wait to see if you actually show symptoms, it's too late, likely, and you end up dying. So they were like, you got to get the shots. But so she's fine. But let me tell you, that was one hefty ER bill. The inoculations were pretty expensive. And uh, let me tell you, wiped out my whole deductible and out-of-pocket maximum for the year. <laughs> so the lesson is, bats are really are dread creatures of the night. <laughs> oh, my God. So uh, she's doing great. But I just thought that was a good public service announcement. Just like DC did all those PSAs in the book. <laughs> We here at the Batman family, you want to get our public service announcements out. 
Wow. I had no idea about that at all. I knew it was bad to get bitten by them, but I didn't have any idea of the details. So yeah, just be careful with bats in the real life. Bat family. <laughs> yeah. Now switching on to better bats. There you go. <laughs> Our bat pal Bucky749 says, hey, bat chums, cousin Jeremy and I are back. We brought some store-bought sushi. This is my first issue of Batman Family I read, and the cliffhanger at the end got me. And was it a great story? And I was shocked and happy to see Batwoman still alive at the end. On to Man Bat. I thought the idea of Man Bat tingling with a horror movie fan was an interesting idea, but my question is, where did he get a flamethrower? <laughs> a great episode and a great guest. Also, the Zodiac Man. That's a villain I'd never heard of. See you next time, same Bat Family time, same Bat Family channel. And Bucky came back and added some additional comments about The Outsiders and a plea for Rob to cover the movie The Outsiders for Film and Water. Check it out. Bat enemy of the shoe, Brian Shufo, stopped by the reunion to add, I'm here for the picnic and I brought a bag full of Clark bars, which is the only one from that <laughs> ad I have ever eaten and only because I found it at the bottom of my Halloween candy. <laughs> I'm sure we've all heard of a Zagnut bar. It's the one Beetlejuice uses to lure the fly with when he's still trapped in the model of the town. I wonder if any of those are still around. I have no idea, Brian. It did not seem like any of our listeners were fans of the Clark Bar family as we thought they might have been. <laughs> Eccentric Bat Uncle Martin Gray says, Oh, I remember this issue with that cover that manages to walk the line between seriously silly and seriously disturbing. Neither of the stories this time was especially great, but they were fun time passers. Yes, indeedy. Kirk's man bat's head looked off, as if he was cosplaying Dell's comics 60s Dracula. What with the stories being dull, my favorite feature this time was the spotlight on the seriously underrated Don Heck. I have to say, nobody drew slow-eyed femme fatales like him. His work here really benefited from Bob Wycheck's inks. I think we can safely credit him for the zipatone that elevated that kid flash illustration. That's definitely Steve Howard in the Tootsie Roll Pop advert, what with the dyed dark hair. And no, I won't insult the logos this issue, because there weren't any, just a mess of words. <laughs> Next up, that sister, Lizanne Oswalt, says, impressive podcast, most impressive. I probably need a new intro, but whatever. This looks like a fun enough comic. The cover is great. I think both Babs and Dick are behind Kathy. I think we're seeing it from the point of view of the shooter. I'm not sure if it's the inker or if Don Heck took his time on this issue, but I think this is the best Mr. Heck's work has ever looked. Being a person who loves to wear a good bathrobe, Barb has one fuzzy looking bathrobe, and I don't see the point of the belt. Still, it's a nice look. I hate to say it, but Lori's outfit looks fine. Not sure what the PR is for on her shirt. Still, it works, as does her hair. However, did Dick go shopping at the Ronald McDonald clothing line? Or is he working for them? Orange and yellow. I suppose it goes together, but it's just not a good look. Is this what happens to Bruce and Dick's outfits when Alfred is not there to dress them? That is why Alfred is always in the tux. He's too busy making sure these two guys don't go out in public to buy other clothes. Next up, if this man is such a great scientist, why decide to dress himself and Babs in outfits that look like saran wrap? Was this the best-looking hazmat suit he could find? It's kind of weird they didn't warn Robin about the problem before he entered the room. <laughs> and saving the day was cool. As for Batwoman being reconstructed from her atoms or skin flakes in her costume, let's remember we're talking about a world where a man can hide his identity wearing a domino mask. Aliens walk around as commonplace. 
Somehow, after her body put itself back together, her clothes fit her perfectly. Alien tech and Earth tech connect easily. Meanwhile, try using an appliance from another country in the U.S. <laughs> On to the next story. It was pretty cool to see Howard Chicken drawing this character. I remember him mostly from The Shadow. Apparently, Kirk has decided to compete with Captain Boomerang and Banshee for Mutton Chops of the Year. <laughs> Can't wait to hear the next podcast. Thanks, Lizanne. Eric stops by to say, A side note regarding the overview of Don Heck's career, since you mentioned his work on the horror comic, Horrific. There's some interesting trivia regarding Heck's most notorious slash iconic cover for that series. At the same publisher, Comic Media, Heck also worked on the war comic, War Fury. And Heck's cover for War Fury number one from September of 1952 featured a disturbing image of a dead soldier lying on the battlefield with a shocked expression on his face and a bullet hole in his forehead. A few months later, the cover of Horrific number three, January 1953, cropped out the image of the soldier's face and used it as an isolated floating head against a blank background, taking a detail of the previous cover and enlarging it into a close-up standalone image. I don't know whether the decision to repurpose Hex art was artistic. This may have been a war cover, but that expression is perfect for a horror cover. Or financial. No time or money to pay an artist for a new cover. Let's just reprint this part. Or a combination of the two. Yeah, interesting story. Thanks, Eric. That was interesting. Yeah. Next up, past guest, our Bat Outsider friend, Tim Price, says, Hey, Bat Cousins, this issue was one of the few I owned back in the day. Boy, that cover and inside image of Batwoman dissolving still wigs me out. And a restoration at the end makes no sense. But I don't <laughs> care. Just glad Kathy survived this ordeal. Absolutely. Now, I agree. Don Heck is not one of my favorite artists. But when I think back to younger Tim reading this comic, I thought the art was fine. I probably even liked it. The action's good, the characters are distinct, and the plastic bag look was not easy to portray. So I'll give it a nice job today. A final note, I always enjoyed the visually mismatched Dr. Braun as the small guy and Mr. Brain as the big guy. And while I can't confirm this definitively, I believe there are two characters who look a lot like this pair in the animated Batman Harley Quinn movie from 2017. Maybe it's just me and the characters are actually a different pair, but I choose to think it's the same duo because what an amazing deep cut that would be. <laughs> Till next time, I'll bring the strawberry fluff. <laughs> hey, thanks, Tim. That was cool. I, I have watched that movie and I don't recall very much about it at all. Sean is nodding, so he agrees with me. So I might have to take a fast through that movie to see if the Dr. Braun and Mr. Brain show up. Next up, Matthew Davis stops by. Hope all the Bat Cousins are keeping warm this winter, especially those in the Northeast. We keep getting teased with snow here in Virginia, but it's more like Mr. Freeze's Harvey Comics doppelganger, Little Chili. <laughs> Gosh, it's hard not to like a swell artist like Don Heck. He might not have been one of my top favorites at the time, but sure as shooting, he would do a darn good job. One might even say a heck of a job, but who would come up with that pun? Okay, okay, I'll stop. Back-to-back team-ups for Robin and Batgirl. You'd think by this point, Dick is thinking instead of Hudson University, he should be going to Potomac College or Chesapeake Tech, somewhere closer to D.C., but still named after a body of water. <laughs> it would make the team-up less expensive. Either that, or C.F. Bruce can get him and Babs access to the JLA teleporter system. Good to see Batwoman back in this issue, but it's too bad she didn't play a larger role. She always seemed like a character they could have done more with, but no one at the time knew exactly what. The big guy is the brain, and the little guy is the brawn. Think that they got their genes spliced like two laboratory mice a couple of decades after this? I don't know. What are we going to do today? <laughs> That's a great catch. Wait, what's this? A scientist. 
of Asian origin who is not a villainous evil stereotype? This is the 70s, right? Well, way to go, Mr. Razakis and DC. I agree. Yeah, we should have called that out. The Man Bat story was a nice little diversion after the continuing storyline he had that con- concluded the previous issue. You have to wonder, does the guy not watch the local news? Has he not seen or heard about Man Bat? And aw, he rescued a dog because they are the greatest thing on this earth. <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree with that. After this issue, I suppose many readers, especially those that had been reading Batman titles for several years, guessed who was trying to get a hold of Kirk. I was 10 years old at the time and had only been reading Batman comics for a little under two years. I don't think I had ever heard of or seen this character at all at this point. I'm exactly with you. Yeah, I had no idea who Jason Bard was at all. Like it was just a a brand new character for me. Y'all found the most 70s moment in this issue. That Mary Hartman reference was really obscure. It was a parody of soap operas like Soap, but not as popular. I never saw it because it was on so late, as in after the 11 o'clock news late. I seem to remember seeing a Carol Burnett skit based on that. A variety show doing a parody of a parody. Yeah, (laughs) the 70s were a weird and fun time. Bat cousin Brett Michael Young is next. Hey, Bat Cousins, I know it's cold outside, so I brought a big pot of chicken soup. Get it while it's hot or before an errant football lands in it. I like that the Batman family has combined Batgirl and Robin into the same story on a regular basis. Keeps up the will-they-won't-they aspect and makes for better overall issues. Bob Wycheck's inks kept this first story from going full tomahawk. You can tell (laughs) on some pages he was doing some heavy lifting. Now that I've kicked him while I was down, let me say I thoroughly enjoyed your Bat Family history lesson on Don Heck. Thanks, Brett. Looking at those covers for Tales of Suspense and Weird Terror, I see the appeal of his earlier work. Plus, I like that in his Wikipedia photo, he looked like a heavier Phil Collins. Who doesn't like Phil Collins? (laughs) I do have some beef this issue. First off, Batwoman. Did you really want to come out of retirement only to get liquefied trying to rescue Mr. and Mrs. Bottom Tooth's fully insured oil paintings and safe jewelry? If you want to do a public service in Georgetown, go down to M Street and beat up some of those double parkers. Speaking of foolish moves, why on earth did Dick answer the phone? Lori is the perfect one semester college girlfriend and he leaves her sitting on his bed so he can go fight some elves. Come on, man. (laughs) As for the most 70s moment, a high-speed car chase in Georgetown would last about half a block before you hit crippling Wisconsin Avenue traffic, <laughs> get stuck behind an oblivious trust fund college student driving their dad's Jaguar, or get sandwiched between two Ubers stopping on both sides of a side street. Robin could have stopped for coffee, called Lori, and still caught the car thieves in a block and a half. That being said, the Batarang track was pretty cool, so all is forgiven. Great detective work by Backer on this issue, figuring out where the crooks would be, and then casually walking around a carnival full of innocent families while infected with a deadly disease. Hey, I guess she does make a good congresswoman. Well, it's time to go. A few of the park's local toughs knocked over the soup on the Aunt Thelma's jello mold, and there's going to be a rumble. Good thing she always brings her bat brass knuckles to every get-together. Next up, Network co-founder and all-star Rob Kelly praises another stunning Apero cover. The combo of Don Heck and Bob Wycheck was something. Wycheck was trying with all his might to bring some grit and heft to Heck's gossamer-like figures, and he almost pulls it off. I know the Man Bat story was silly, but I like that the book could make space for little asides like this with members of the Batman family that couldn't carry their own book. With so many comics pros living in New York, and usually on tight deadlines, I imagine the whole watching weird TV late at night was something right from their own experience. Definitely one of the things lost when the anthology books went belly up. 
Love the show as always. Thanks, Rob. And finally, network all-star and past and future bat guest Chris Franklin says, sorry, very late to the reunion this month. I see all the fried chicken is gone. Who left the extra crispy skin in the bucket? Yuck. I have this comic. This was probably the second issue of Batman Family Proper I got from the back issue bins when I first visited comic shops about 35 years ago with a big exclamation point. You, you joined the club, Chris. No. <laughs> Don Heck. Yeah. I totally admire his 60s Marvel stuff. Most of the Iron Man segments, quote unquote, animated on the Marvel Superheroes cartoon series were direct lifts from his artwork. I've seen his pencils during his later JLA run, and it's really nice looking. Something was lost in translation from pencils to ink, so maybe his complaint about bad inkers is true. Bob Wycheck is a great inker in his own right, but I'm not sure he and Heck meshed well. Although, there are some nice images in the story, where Wycheck obviously is bringing in a modern, Simonson, Rogers-esque approach. Robin not only looks young in the panel following Kathy's rematerialization, he looks like a young John Denver. Gotham Roads, take me home. <laughs> Man Bat Story. Any resemblance to Ambrose and a host of the Fire and Water Network is purely coincidental. <laughs> Carl Denham was not a name used in the 70s King Kong, so Ambrose is referencing the original. I didn't have a problem with Chaikin's Man Bat. The rounded ears on the movie monster are probably there to differentiate him just a bit from the real deal, who looks pretty on model to me. I'm just surprised considering that this is Chaikin, that Francine isn't clad in S&M gear. Oh, and those long t-shirt style nightshirts aren't necessarily 70s. They are still around. Cindy has worn them for years. I agree. Diana looks great in that circular panel in the hostess ad. I think Swan was channeling Linda Carter. Looks just like her from some of the modern era episodes. Considering Giganta was an evolved ape and never a 50-foot woman in the comics before, I wonder if someone at Hanna-Barbera saw this ad when assembling the Legion of Doom and decided to upgrade that character, weirder <laughs> things have happened. Great show as always. Paul W. was a great guest, and regular Paul and Sean brought it as always. Until next month, cousins. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Okay, so right now we are going to acknowledge our Bat family members who shared our podcast on social media, and we really appreciate the support from our online community. We're going to start off first with Facebook. And the Facebook's likes and messages um, came from Van Z, Doug Game Master, Brian Linton, Max Romero, Shag Matthews, John Hyget, Mike Thomas, Don Lindbergh, Scott Rowland, Chris Franklin, Brett Young, Mike Richards, Herschel Minas, Paul Wildenberger, Keith G. Baker, Terry O'Malley, Jim Beard, Clinton Robison, Mike Saunders. Now we're going to flip over to Twitter and we're going to start off with the network mentions. And they came from Mountain Comics, Treasury Comics, For All Mankind SF, Fire and Water Network, Firestorm Fan, Irredeemable Shad, and my beloved Digest Cast. And we mentioned that I was on the most recent issue talking about Dead Man. We also got mentions from Martin Gray, Between the Pages Blog. Michael Thomas, Brian Shufo, Siskoid, Willie Yarborough, The Bat Pod, Mike Deans, Jeff Owens, Tim Price, The Pod Crasher, Ranger Gord, Culture Wars Draft Dodger, Dave's Comics Heroes Blog, Roger Preeb, Martin Menza, 
Rodney Trainum, and Chuckles is reading all of Zero Hour. We really appreciate everybody's likes, comments, interactions online. It, it really means a lot to us. So I think everybody knows that Running the Fire and Water Network has gotten more costly over the years as more and more shows were added. So if you're enjoying what you hear on this show or any of our other shows, please consider becoming a patron. We are not all Bruce Wayne, but any small amount you can give helps defray the cost and help the Cavalier keep the tech from the Isle of a Thousand Thrills working. <laughs> Find out how. Go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts and thanks. That will do it for the feedback section and for episode 15. We want to thank again our special guests, Jim Beard and Craig Boldman, for appearing on this episode. You both were really great. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will join us next month for the return of Dula Dent. Take care, everybody.